This is Within and Between, a podcast about the methods and meta-science behind developmental science. Hi, it's Jessica Logan. And it's Sarah Hart. And we're Within and Between. Welcome back. Hi. Oh, wait, I forgot. I'm supposed to start like this. Hello there. Okay. (laughs) You even had it in the notes. I did. I I had it in the notes. Am I supposed to say something back? I don't don't know. You're not. Okay. (laughs) You're not supposed to say something back. So that comes from entirely us leaning right into our Star Wars numbering of that as episode one. This is episode two, so I decided to channel some Ewan McGregor playing Obi-Wan Kenobi and saying hello there, which he's rather famous for saying in that particular episode of I don't the like movie. it. It's like, like you are speaking another language to me. And like, I've seen the movies. <laughs> I have a child that talks nonstop about Star Wars. So we've been watching them again in the cartoons and even listened to a podcast about Star Wars this morning. And <gasps> I still like, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> do you know who the character is? I Surely do. You know who that is. I okay. do. I even know who the actor is. And I'm like, I, none of that sounds familiar. <laughs> <laughs> No, General Grievous, the one with the lightsabers. Oh, yeah. I believe me, that's my kid's favorite because the four lightsaber, <gasps> lightsabers, all he talks about. Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, we, uh, in true Star Wars fashion, have uh, left you hanging between episodes. I apologize for that. We just, uh, life happened. Life happened. <laughs> but we're here. We're back. <laughs> No longer waiting. The scroll is happening. So anyway, last time we talked a lot about preparing your data, preparing to collect your data. We talked about sort of the systems you want to put in place. We talked about uh, getting ready to, like how to name your variables, how Mm -hmm. to create IDs for people, how to decide who's in your study, those sorts of things. So we talked a lot about that. And then um, we had a listener and wonderful human reach out to us on Twitter and say, hey, we also forgot about something. So oh, Crystal yeah. Lewis, Thank who you. we tweet, we added in the show notes last time about, she's a wonderful data management resource on her website. Um, and she pointed out a really important piece we forgot. You know, we said, don't let Qualtrics name your variables for you because you will be disappointed. They will name them all kinds of funky, weird things. Mm-hmm. But she pointed out, also don't let it name your variable values for you. And I will say that the variable values that they put in, it is actually worse than the variable names that they randomly come up with. I would say all day long, let them name your variables. If don't let them name your values. Mm-mm. Every time I just let it go. And then you have to deal with it with code afterwards. And I hate myself every time. It's so miserable. Because they're like 0, 32, 18, negative 4. Yeah. What? Where did they come from? And no also- idea. To figure out what the variable values are, you have to press like six buttons. It's not quite that many, but it's like four. And so you have to do that for every variable. And so if you're like recoding a question, and we're going to talk about that, at like dealing with, you know, the, you know, the final raw data to a clean data set to use, and you're like doing some scores or whatever. And you're like, oh, let me just check the, you know, doing some checks of the ranges and stuff. I'm like, oh, f- 
Wait, every, why does this one go to 32? Every single variable has to be recoded. The values have to be recoded in my code. And none of them are the exact same. So you can't just use like one loop to recode all your variable names. It has to be like a whole like lines and lines and lines of if-then statements. Mm. It's brutal. It is brutal. It is absolutely brutal. So yes, uh, agreed. Thank you so much for pointing that out, Crystal, because that's miserable. Mm -hmm. And it's just hours and hours of work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that can't be done any other way Mm -mm. Mm -mm. than by hand. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, that is a really fun brutal way to, to open the, <laughs> this episode. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. The idea is to save yourself from that pain. We're yes. going to help you save yourself from the pain. Be That's better. The idea. Be better than Sarah has always been and just do it at the front end when you're setting up the variable <laughs> names. Or setting up the variables, I should say. Yeah. Be better. Be better than me. <laughs> so today we're going to talk about what comes next. So we did all the sort of setup information. We even talked a little bit about how you track people through the study, which is kind of pushing our our before and after dichotomy. But, you know, as we like to say, all dichotomies are false. I like to say that around here. So within this information here, um, we're going to talk a little bit more about what happens after you've started collecting your data. And we're going to start... with my favorite (laughs) data entry (laughs) now i i like to set this up by saying uh so a lot of our listeners might only be familiar with collecting data via qualtrics or via Mm. like amazon m turk or just sort of wide scale email distribution of digital surveys and we'll talk about that in a minute what we're talking about here is data data entry, which typically happens if you've collected data on paper forms. Mm-hmm. So sometimes that can look like, you know, I'm, I'm still giving the PPVT, but I'm giving it in person. And I have a, as opposed to not in person, whatever. You're giving it one-on-one and you have a like bubble sheet thing that you're filling out about each kid that you're sitting with. Um Sometimes it's an observational assessment. You all collect a lot of paper data in the form of mailed surveys. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we love our mailed surveys in my lab. Mm-hmm. And um, so the the issue with data entry is you have to go from these paper records to something digital so that you can actually, you know, run means and standard deviations and whatever else you want to do to the data. So in order to get them from paper form to the digital format, people have used a wide variety of systems. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I I don't think we know exactly what people tend to use in education. I know from my anecdotal experience what I've seen people do. Um, and I know from in other fields, there's been some scientific sort of study of the data entry process and what, what people do and how they... Uh, how they get the data into digital form and then how they check and make sure that it's actually accurate, which is a key step of this process. So why don't we start with what, what do you do, Dr. Hart, in your lab? So we, we use two, like what program is what you're talking about? Uh, Like I just meant like process, what system or process, like what you get a paper form. What do you do with it? Oh, okay. Buckle up. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm ready. 
So we design any questionnaire, like survey or um, in-person, you know, behavioral assessment packet or whatever, so that the very front page, it's just single-sided and it's the contact information. So if it's a mailed questionnaire, it's like the parent's name and their address, their, where they want their their gift, what kind of gift card they want, where they want it mailed. All that identifiable information is on the front page of the packet that comes back. Same if it's a kid's behavioral, so the identifiable birthday, testing date, that sort of stuff, front page. So then the packet comes into the lab and the lab coordinator enters in that information into the participant tracking spreadsheet. We use access or the like um, to track that that questionnaire or assessment is in the lab, what's been received, the data that's been received, the information that's on there that we need. Then we rip off that front page and keep that usually with like informed consent or something where identifiable information is locked away. Uh, and then the packet is just, uh, you know, un, uh, de-identified, not fully, but, you know, to some extent, uh, data that needs to be entered by a data enterer. And uh, in our yeah. lab, the data enterers are usually like undergrad research students. And so then it gets into the process. And then we have usually a filing cabinet that's for first entry. So then that questionnaire or behavioral packet goes into a filing cabinet, into folders that are there for students who are entering, doing first entry of data. And so then a student will come along and use a file, uh, a data uh, entry program. Right now my lab actually goes back and forth between using RedCap or FileMaker. Uh, We're kind of in a transition place between moving from FileMaker to RedCap. So that's why we use both right now across two projects. Uh, and so the data enterer will sit down. They've been fully trained in how to do the entry and they look at the packet and they enter into the data entry screens first round. And then they'll usually sign off on a book or someplace that they've done data entry of that packet. They also sign on the physical packet as well that they've done first entry. Uh, and then that packet or survey then goes into a second filing cabinet drawer that's for second entry and gets filed there. And then a totally different student, that's why they they, they sign off on everything. A, a totally different student does that full process again, pull out the packet, total second entry, every single item uh, into the same file, into the data entry system. Then they sign off on it that they've done second entry and the like. And then they put it in a different filing cabinet that's to be stored so then the project manager or whoever will store that data set in the, the, sorry, that data, the paper data, wherever it's supposed to be stored um, permanently. And then usually uh, somebody in the lab, usually the project coordinator or someone kind of higher level does the, the, runs the check between first and second entry and finds any inconsistency between the two entries and makes it a final decision, goes back to the packet or whatever needs to happen on what the final for um, uh, what should be entered as the correct final entry. And then that's the full kind of life cycle of data entry in my lab. Excellent. <laughs> that was, I, I don't know about anybody else, but that was totally riveting to me. Honestly, like, <laughs> I know that I sound like I'm full of crap, but I, I mean it. I was like, then what happens? More. I think that's so interesting because it's such a it's such a huge process and I anybody who's listening might notice that you probably never read about that in anybody's papers. No, it's not the kind of thing that ends up in papers. 
the only reason, and so like when I was a graduate student, this was my job. I managed data management, um, data entry, I should say, in my lab as a graduate mm-hmm. student. And I learned all of these steps from my PhD advisor, our mutual advisor, who I actually don't know who he learned it from. I have to assume maybe our other mutual advisor, but I don't know. Um, It was never told to me how he knew it. And I actually never once discussed it with other graduate students in other labs, but data entry they did. Mm -hmm. It's not taught in my current program, um, although I do plan to teach it in the fall in a professional development class I'm teaching. Um, I actually realize now my graduate students don't even necessarily manage the data entry system in my lab because I have a full set of staff that do it uh, and none of them are on that. And so like, I don't even necessarily do the greatest of job teaching my graduate students. Interesting. And you're right. It's just not discussed anywhere. And do this, this process. Well, yeah, it's like, okay, why don't, you know, what do you do? Well, I don't have to, I don't have well, any paper data, so. You teach I people don't. how to do it though, right? <laughs> yes. So the so I, I teach about data entry in the way that you describe, basically. And the reason, um, this is one of the areas of data management that has been pretty well studied in multiple fields. So the what you described there about entering first and then entering a second time, they call that data double entry. Mm-hmm. So data double entry is uh, has been demonstrated to correct about uh, 10% of errors. So if you're entering data single, like one time only, uh, on most of the science out there suggests between like 5 and 15% of your data will have errors, which if you have 100 people and 200 items, you know, everybody's going to have some error. In which case you're now measuring how much noise are you measuring? I, I I suppose that's empirical question that we would we could look at. So there's some really interesting work that's been done on uh, different kinds of checking because some of check some ways of checking are easier. Like you may have heard about um, uh, randomly checking twenty percent of the data mm-hmm. is one thing that I that I sometimes will hear people say that they do. Well, that will catch errors sometimes, but not. Not all of them. And so there's some experimental work that folks have done, and we can link you in the in the show notes here, that have suggested that those sorts of visual checking or just visually checking at 20%, they don't catch nearly as many errors as the double entry system catches. So it's a, your data is going to be much higher quality if you are entering it, if you enter it twice. Yeah, I mean, there... Once you do it once in your lab, you'll be horrified and never not do it again because the mm-hmm. inconsistencies you see across first and double entry um, show you that what would have been missed if it had only been entered once. And we find there's like a couple sources of errors. There's just pure mistakes. You know, you're having a human sit and do something that's, you know, repetitious and a little boring. Uh, and it's cold in there. Yeah. And they just you know, do too many zeros or too many ones in a row and they mess it up. So they make Mm -hmm. a mistake. But also, you know, like I said, you know, we send questionnaires home to families and have them fill out. And sometimes it's hard to read their writing or sometimes it's, uh, we talked last time about rules as well. You know, participants will give you a range when you don't want a range or select a value outside of it. And 
the particular data enterer might just forget about what the lab rules are for that, you know, weird data point. And so that usually, it's hyper unusual. That's why we have two different people, by the way, do the data entry. Uh, mm -hmm. Because you want two different eyes, you know, looking at the writing, you know, if it's a, a misunderstanding of writing, well, one human brain will kind of remember what they thought they saw that should look like the first time around, and we'll put that in again, whereas a second human brain will say, see something else in this ineligible and illegible, illegible, thank you, <laughs> <laughs> writing, um, and so, uh, you know, the, once you see those level of mistakes, you know, it's, it takes us a long time to, after the first and second entry to do those checks because they're almost every long packet. Like if I have a questionnaire, that's like my typical questionnaire lengths, which are pretty long, like 20 pages long or something like mm -hmm. that, that almost every single one will have something that has come up. Yep. Yep. I believe it. And, um, I, I still mourn the loss of the original SPSS data, data entry system. Yeah, the data God. builder. That's how I was trained as a graduate student. I spent so many hours building data entry forms. So many hours building data entry forms. Oh. Yeah, so this is a good point. You know, you notice that we're talking about specific data entry systems, right? Yeah. RedCamp, mm -hmm. RedCap, or yeah, SPSS used to have one, but they discontinued it when IBM bought the product, which I think was a huge mistake. Um, FileMaker, what are some others that you know of? That's it. I oh. mean, the other things that I've seen are Excel and then Access. Or yeah. So at least Access, you can make it look like the form. The big difference of what these data entry programs do is they allow you to set up the screens, as it were. That's still old like language, I think, from the old SPSS version. <laughs> yeah, I think You would so. set up these screens that look like the packets that the data enterers are entering. So the extent to which you take some time to design the data entry screens to look like the packet that the sorry that the data enterer is going to enter into it makes it cognitively easier for them to enter the data. Like this yeah. is the physical place on the page is the same physical place on the page on the screen that you're going to mm -hmm. enter that data. And though so these, it does reduce the cognitive load, yeah. Yeah, but these, that means you have to set up all those tab. You have to like move things around. Oh in yeah, space it takes then, it takes a long time to do that. To be honest, but um. You know, if you know, if you're for real working with a lot of data, I would say more than maybe a few data entry points, you should not be using spreadsheets to enter in your data. It's nope. way too easy to line skip or column shift while you're entering in data. And it's just well, it will be lots of extra work to redo it uh, if there are mistakes. So these specialty programs, make it more friendly for the data enterer and also can do cool stuff on the back end like, um, it can check like total scores, right? So in my mm -hmm. lab, we enter in every single thing. I have worked with colleagues who I get their data and they have only entered in total scores, let's say mm -hmm. of, you know, the Peabody vocabulary test. Mm -hmm. They don't put item level data in, they just put the total score. Let me mm -hmm. strongly encourage everyone to enter in every single piece of data, including the item level data. It has yes. at least two things I think that are useful. First, there are cool statistical methods that you use the item level data for. Right. And you might want that item level data. And even like reliability check, you're going to have to publish your reliability. You need the item level data. Just mm -hmm. enter in the item level data. But second, when we're talking about data entry is, you know, your tester likely calculates the total score, the kid's score on that, uh, that measure. In my lab, they would write it down and then circle it. 
um, you know, your, your data enterer by can enter in every, you know, the ones and zeros for every item and then mm-hmm. enter in the total score that the tester wrote down. But your data mm-hmm. entry software can do the math and add up all those ones across the test and say, do I think that the total score is the same as the one that the tester thinks? Are those numbers correct? And, uh, and it's crazy how hard it is to do simple math in the field and how mm-hmm. many times those ones are not added up properly towards the total score. All the time. Yeah. All the time they're wrong. All the time they're wrong. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's truly astounding how, how, how off it can be. Yeah. So that's um, why the data entry programs, I think, give you that benefit as well. You can do that with code afterwards, but mm-hmm. um, the programs do it kind of in the background for you. Yeah. And they can catch things. God, what, there's so much. We've already been talking for so long about this, and I feel like we could talk for so much longer <laughs> because with things like the PPVT, you have a basal and a ceiling. Yes. And one of the big issues that I have dealt with in the past is we have uh, like testers in the field who think that they hit a basal or but, think that they hit a ceiling, but, but they, they actually don't. didn't. Yeah. And you don't catch it until you get it in and get it entered. And so if that data entry system is, you know, six months later, you're entering the data or looking at it, it might be six months before you catch it. And then you can't, it, that data is lost. You really can't get it. Um, so we have tried to set up a system that now uh, catches those basal and ceiling errors on the fly. And like, won't we, so we have a new digital system that you can sort of enter things into that has been developed that they are working on in, in my, in the, in the lab there. And they, um, it's like catches and flags for you immediately. Like, this is not actually a basil. Please drop down another six items and try again (laughs) to try and set the basil. Um, So the, I mean, that's super fancy advanced that, uh, I, that is not available on the market yet, which is unfortunate. But yeah, that so happens cool. in the, that happens in the field. You said, mm-hmm. yeah, for in the field right now for us mortals. I know um, <laughs> what I do right is you just train people to give more items, and the off chance yeah. that there's a mistake because you know the you can always if you've gone too far with a child and you've missed the where the ceiling stop rule is, but you go further, then that's okay. Um, but not getting as many items as you need means the form is totally lost. That test is totally lost to that child. Yeah. So yeah. Unfortunately, can... it's true. Anyway, um, data entry, data entry, data entry. Well, I mean, there's just so much about data entry. That's, uh, that's, it, it's a really important step. And I think, um, it's a real easy way to catch errors, uh, quickly. And I like the point that you made about entering all of the items. So I wanted to re-emphasize that that's so cool. Oh, the other piece about that is that if it's something like a survey, maybe you want to add the items together in a different way for a particular yeah. project. Mm-hmm. Um, people do that all the time. So entering it is uh, that way is, is much better. Um, I do have a good non-example. Oh, okay. Which I, I will give you from my my first year of graduate school which is I was working on a grant um, and we were doing data entry in a way that I do not advise anyone to do, which is direct into SPSS. Oh yeah. That's like doing it directly into Excel, straight into a, a yeah. like a spreadsheet. And it was like a stack of information, a stack of packets. And you sort of sat down and you opened 
the spreadsheet and you resaved a new version of it with your initials and the date. Oh, thank God, because what I'm about to tell you. (laughs) And then you, you know, pull the things off the top and then you just enter them. You just find where the kid's ID is and then you find the first item and then you start typing and then you just hit over like type number, push over, type number, push over. And just anybody who's worked in Excel, you have to know that that how fraught with errors that could be. You accidentally push up instead of over. Mm-hmm. You're you're now overwriting someone else's data. You accidentally sort it. You're in absolutely terrible shape. Um, there's just all kinds of ways that can go wrong. But the way that it went wrong that I did not anticipate happened in the second year, in my second year, where I was I handed another like a new first year student and said, "Go enter these data." And she called me on the phone as I was walking into work and was like, I can't think, I can't figure it out. This is supposed to be time two data, but this already has time two data in it. So I went ahead and just entered it as time three. And I was like, oh, it's not, but it's not time three data. It's time two data that you're entering. It should be this kid's time two data. She was like, yeah, but it's definitely not because they already have time two data. I don't know what's going on. And eventually I figured out that it was because she was... Like she was looking at the ID and the ID was 123. And then she was going to row 123 in the SPSS data set and entering the data on row 123, which went with ID 36217, right? It was a totally different ID system. So that's, that is why I was glad we were saving versions at the time. So I do not recommend that anyone follow suit and do it like that, because that's really problematic. It's It can be super problematic that way. Data entry forms, good. Yeah, use specialized programs. Um, FileMaker costs a little bit of money. RedCap does not, but I think requires a server, so there's a little bit more. Does it I think still? it depends on where you are. I think okay. RedCap is not free for everyone, but it's free if your university p- pays for it, maybe. Oh. I don't actually know enough yeah. about RedCap because it seems to be an incredible piece of software. Yeah, we're switching to it, but I actually don't think we have a strong opinion as a lab as to what's better. Okay. They both, their RedCap and FileMaker are pros and cons. RedCap was made by psychology or education uh, professor, so it is was designed for the way that we use it. So like, um, it's not create like they know about double entry FileMaker. You kind of have to hack FileMaker to do double entry. It's not mm-hmm. set up for that, which is why SPSS data builder was so amazing. Cause it was set up to have two entries. It just automatically told you that was the beauty yeah. is you entered a second time and it would say, Hey, double check this, this one, yeah. the first person said three and you say two, which one is true. Yeah. So neither FileMaker or RedCap are, are quite as perfect in all areas that each have kind of pros and cons, but all are better than spreadsheet entry. Do you hear that, developers listening to this podcast? Yeah. Maybe we Please. need a, a side gig, Jess. Maybe we should make some data entry software. Seriously. Make some software. Anybody want to pay it, us to make some software? <laughs> we know exactly what it should look like. Yeah. And we know how it should work. Yeah. Goodness. I can't. Uh, all right. Anyway, let's let's go to topic two. Yeah. <laughs> Remember how I was like, data entry is going to take us a long time. I know. <laughs> we filled the other. We should have broken this down into more chunks of data entry. <laughs> um, 
the other thing, so the next part I have here is data pull down, which mm-hmm. was my equivalent of data entry, but for those of you running Qualtrics type oh, uh, yes. online digital surveys. Because once you're done with digital survey distribution, you have to then say, okay, give me my data. Mm-hmm. So sometimes people call that pulling, pulling the data down. So it's yeah. a data pull. Um, and w- the big thing that I wanted to say is that if you've never done this before and you're planning to give a Qualtrics survey and you've heeded our advice about naming your own variables and checking the variable values yourself, um, when you pull the data down, what you need to know is that it's a lot weirder looking than you expect. Gosh. It's got all kinds of weird stuff going on. Variables come down variables. in whatever order they feel like. Yeah. And you have to like, do you want the legacy format or the, the, the it's weird. It's, it's not weird. as easy as it should be. And it must be because they're trying to make it really flexible, but. Absolutely. Absolutely. Which I, I completely respect. You want to make it as flexible as possible. But the problem with flexibility is it's just like learning R, you know, it's a huge, a huge, uh, steep learning curve. Mm-hmm trying to make something flexible. So it's just, it is going to be more challenging than you expect. If you think I'm going to download the data today and run some means, no, you're not. You're going to (laughs) download the data today and then you're going to go, what the, huh? And then you're going to spend the day trying to get the data into some sort of format that you can actually analyze. Every single time. This is usually when my two screens really come in handy. If I'm pulling data from Qualtrics, then I have the survey up and Qualtrics on one screen and my SAS code or whatever on the other screen because, and then I go variable to variable from the top of the data file down. I'm like, what is this variable? Mm-hmm. Oh, it was not a variable that I intended to collect. It was some sort of background variable that Qualtrics has. Mm-hmm. Delete variable. That I just go variable to variable to variable and say, is was this in a, my original screens, you know, my original questionnaire, or is this like the one of like six GIS, you know, or like coordinates variables that they take in or the, the IP address, IP address, like all that, like location A, location B, I think, or some, right? That's extra. I don't, there's always usually like V1, V2, V3, V4, which you didn't ever intend. I don't... I, all kinds of weird stuff is in there. And I this is the so this actually leads really well into the next piece, yeah. which is data manipulation, which is okay. what I think that a lot of that is, which is taking the data that you get and massaging it. Or there's a wonderful piece called Tidy Data, which is a, a, an old piece. It's about taking data and shaping it so that it can actually be examined. And so that's a little bit of data manipulation. So um, I wrote in my notes here, data manipulation. Yeah. That sounds like not good. Yeah. We can don't... we use a different word? <laughs> <laughs> we do not mean manipulating your data. No, don't delete numbers and put new numbers in there. Yeah, none of that. <laughs> it's like, it's what you were saying, which is like making sure that you don't have any variables that are totally missing that should be there or that are there that you don't know what they are. Taking those variables out, you're cleaning them up in a way where you're sort of saying, "Oh, this says this says V12, but I meant it to say PPVT version one, whatever." Mm-hmm. So you're changing the variable name to match your variable naming scheme if something got out of whack in your 
data loading process. Um, so, or, or sometimes you have to reverse score items mm-hmm. or check the variable values and make sure that they read in correctly. It's supposed to be 0, 1, 2, 3, and 4, but oh, for this item, it was 0, 18, 23, and 9. Mm-hmm. You have to change all of that. So that's the sort of uh, transferring it and getting it ready to, uh, to be looked at. Do you have a name for that? We do that all with like syntax or code, right? Don't just do it. SPSS will allow you to just change those variable names, um, but I would do it all in a way that can be reproduced, do it via syntax. But do you have a name for that type of syntax? Do you? Yeah, I think I got like data management syntax versus like analysis code. Um, yeah, data preparation sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes I call it data, data preparation or data prep. Now, now I will say I, this is different. So I, mm. let me let me back up because I I have a a difference between uh, manipulation or ugh, again I hate that word management of data that I do uh, right before I analyze it versus as I'm pulling the data in. Oh yeah. So I actually think those are very different processes, and I talk about the second one later. But this one is like. Do I did I pull in data that's interpretable and understandable? Mm-hmm. Is it correcting things that sort of got out of whack on your way in? Essentially, mm-hmm. I do yeah. agree with you that you should still keep syntax or code of whatever manipulations you do at that point, um, because you'll not remember later. Yeah, I guess I think of you know like a, a paper code or analysis code. You know the syntax that goes to a paper. There's always that part at the beginning. You're right, where you have to you're checking the the distributions of the variable. You're checking random thing. You know you're making sure the variables are the way they are. You know maybe for that paper alone, you need to recode a variable to be in the opposite right. direction. You do that, but though that's the data management specific to the paper. Mm-hmm. Um, and then this, you're right. This is like the the data manipulation, data management to the data set, so that you can yeah. release what I call an analyzable data set that yeah. somebody else can come around and use this data. It's clean. Yeah, we'll get to that part too later in a minute. But I think that the um, the key there being that sometimes there's a real hesitancy. Um, like sometimes you don't feel like, like who who would I ever share this data with? I'm just going to use this data to write this one paper. I don't need to do all of these steps. And let me just stop you right there and tell you that this data is more worthwhile than you think that it is. Mm -hmm. And you will probably use it in lots of ways you don't expect. And so keeping record of everything you do to it is going to do nothing but make you happy in the future. Mm -hmm. Because you'll, even though you think, oh, I just collected this one survey to, to report the results of this experiment, but you might not. And also maybe the reviewers will come back and say, what about X, Y, and Z? And you don't remember how you got to X, Y, or Z. Like, so then that, that there's just all kinds of good reasons to document anything you do to your data to make it analyzable. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Okay. So then let me move on to the other piece of this um, post-collection, um, I don't know, process, which is data merging. So a lot of times when people are collecting data like this, you will have one survey that you've collected and one Qualtrics system and then one in another system, or maybe you're doing one at one time point and one at another. 
I worked on a project once where they set up entirely different data sets for every single administration of every single assessment. Mm. So you had a data set for PPVT at time one and a data set for the uh, EVT, the uh, whatever expressive vocabulary test at time one and for reading at time one and a whole other data set for uh, teacher reports of behavior at time one. Every single thing was a different data set. Wow. And all of that had to be merged together into one thing in order to make your data match up. More commonly, you'll see data collected at time one, data collected at time two. You have to merge them together. Data merging is another skill that we don't teach, Mm -hmm. but that students need to learn. Everyone needs to learn how to manipulate and merge. Manipulate. Again, there's that word. That's what they call it in like computer science. You manipulate the data. You like you massage it and you move it around. So I keep keeps coming up, but I'm I'm gonna try to drop it. I'm gonna try to drop it. Such a bad, <laughs> such a terrible word. Merging data. Um so the reason that I brought this up is that there's a really interesting case from around 2008 um where and and actually I think it just happened again this summer. I think I read about someone this summer. I'll have to look that one up. But certainly in 2008, there was this case of um, a merging error gone wrong, where people didn't merge by ID. They just sort of copied everybody's data from one data set over and pasted it into another data set. And it came up in this really interesting way. And um, all right. And full disclosure, I read about this on Sanjay Srivastava's blog, which is called, I think he's hard sci on Twitter. Um, and he talks about, he has this, this phrase that he uh, talks about in this blog post called science is more interesting when it's true. Mm. And let me tell you that I read that and I, I fully believe it changed the trajectory of my <laughs> career because I was like, yes, science is more interesting when it's true. And I want to know more about this. Like what? There are all of these different ways that science can be not true. So it, he, sorry, this comes up because he's talking about this errata that was published, mm-hmm. where essentially the 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 person had merged data incorrectly, and so through that found a, like a zero correlation between two things that we knew would be correlated, and so then sort of stood up and said, "This, there's no way that these two things are not." correlated in your sample something is wrong i think it's probably a merging error and the person was like no 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 i'm sure i did it right and then there's this cool paper that he published where he took uh the same either the same data or something very similar and merged the data in incorrectly so there's like 12 items essentially on this data and so he merged the data in incorrectly 12 times so that one time is correct and then 11 times are wrong. And then demonstrated just what the correlation looked like every time you merge the data in wrong for like all the people and all the items. Okay. Versus when you merged it in correctly and showed that only one time do you get a correlation and every other time it's zero. Therefore, this paper had a zero correlation and you just merged the data in wrong. Anyway, that's a very long story, but it's so, so interesting. And I really admire the commitment to being like, no, you guys, you definitely merged this data wrong. Look, I can prove it to you. And to then publish the findings of this 
essentially, it's not a simulation study, but it's kind of like a simulation study. Yeah. To say, like, look at what happens when you merge things in wrong. I just, I just love it. And I love it that it came under the guise, not the guise, under the, under this beautiful saying of science is more interesting when it's true, which I think applies to all of data management practices. If you're not careful, then you're going to be publishing on error. And we don't want to be doing that because it's hard to build careers on error. It's hard to do. It is. It, they will likely not reproduce. They will likely um, not work again the same way. Right. Uh, you know, with even within your own lab, even, you know, just an extension of it or something. Um, and it's funny. I think that we train, you know, like think about how many weeks in a statistics class you might talk about assumptions of your model or ah. something else. Like thinking about, are you applying your correct statistical model? All of these things, is it going to be correct? Are you testing your research question properly. Like we think so, so in depth about, okay, are your statistics right? And, you know, are they going to be true uh, to the best of, you know, in the probability sense true. And yet we don't have a discussion about all of the errors that can happen in this data management before it even shows up on someone's computer to do a statistical model. In. And mm -hmm. we don't even consider any of that or any, you know, I know we've said it again, but like there's no training in it. There's no information right. about that part. And the person who's doing the statistics, who is, you know, motivated to be the best that they can be and to be as true as they can be with what they're doing, you know, could be total building that statistical model on top of completely incorrect data. Mm -hmm. That's absolutely, that's absolutely right. And that's, so our goal here is to help you catch all of these errors so that si your science can be more interesting because it will be mm -hmm. true. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that, I think, brings us to data cleaning. Oh. Yeah. Now, I'm interested. I, I think that I don't differentiate these last two, data cleaning and data manipulation and merging in my head. Those are all one step to me. Uh, oh, that's okay. all one thing. And I would actually call all of that data cleaning. That's what in my head it's called. Um, and so, yeah, tell us a little bit about, you know, what, what is different with data cleaning and what you're talking about, even re revisiting again, how to dif differentiate it from the data manipulation. Sure. So I was thinking about it more in terms of, um, I mean, I get, I guess you could put them all under one umbrella. I don't know that they're necessarily that that distinct. I was thinking about mm -hmm. data manipulation sort of in terms, again, we hate that word. So maybe it's better to just call it data cleaning. Um, in terms of, of that first step that you have to do in order to make sure that Qualtrics or your data enterers did things correctly, that you end up with the data that you think you were supposed to end up with, which I, I think could be a data cleaning step. But I also think about data cleaning mm -hmm. uh, more expressly as like, checking your ranges, which I suppose could be part of the other thing. So checking your ranges would be one, one thing mm -hmm. that you would do as data cleaning, which is, I think that this scale should range from zero to a hundred, but here's somebody who has a score of 130. What's going on there? I need to pull the data back up and, and look at it. Um, so that's a, that's a, an impossible outlier mm -hmm. in this case, that's a data cleaning impossible outlier. So maybe I guess maybe they aren't that different. Maybe I tried to create a false dichotomy again <laughs> <laughs> no well we're on data let's stick on it we don't have to, to blow it all up here let's stick all on right, data right, cleaning right. we'll do that um what are some other things you do in data cleaning 
Um, I like to look at the, uh, not just the ranges, but also the distributions of things to mm -hmm. sort of check and make sure that they are what I expect them to be. Um, within the context of, uh, like the things you were talking about before, where you have people who have written the, the total score on something, and then you check that against the calculated total score. That's another thing that I would do during this, mm -hmm. uh, during this data cleaning stage, make sure that those numbers are correct. Um, making sure that things are summing appropriately if they need to be summed. Those, those are the sorts of, yeah, those are the big, the big ones mm -hmm. that I, that I check for. Do you have other ones that you do at this stage? No, usually uh, those things. And then if I'm feeling fancy, then like when I'm doing the sum scores, I also like code in labels for the sum score, like any new variables I create, then I also create new labels for them as well for the data analyzer in the future. That's my mm, so gift, you... gift to them. Yeah. <laughs> and I usually include things. Yeah. Like it, you know, this is the sum score of this measure. It was taken. And I usually include the public original publication of the measure in the label. So that, cause I am, you know, notorious for forgetting that. So that's like my new little trick. Oh, um, so extra. I love that. I just put that in the code book, but that's really yeah. brilliant. Yeah. I put it in both places now. Just put it right there. Yeah. That's nice. That's really handy. So that's, but yeah, those types of things, you're right. Look, looking for, oh, you know, if, if I've been working with somebody else and they program Qualtrics to have all sorts of different missing variable labels or something like that, then I usually just re go ahead and recode all those to <laughs> my, my preference. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, look for any bizarre, uh, like, um, for example, we did one administration of a test um, where we think we had some issues with the administration and we had a lot of perfect scores on oh. a standard, at a standardized a, a timed standardized test. Uh, <laughs> like children should not be getting this many perfect <laughs> scores for a test that's made for ages three to 99, <laughs> this one same form. Uh, and so then, you know, it, it was like, why do I have, why is one quarter of my data set getting a perfect score on this test? Yes. You know, look for those types of things. Like just so you can see in the distribution or. Right. Mm -hmm. And I want to distinguish here that we're not looking for possible outliers. No. The goal of looking at the distribution isn't to be like, huh, this guy got a higher score than everybody else. No. It's mm -hmm. to say, huh, we're only supposed to go up to 100 and this person got 130. That's not possible. Not What's possible. going on there? So it's casting possible, like impossible outliers. Not the, like, maybe we should consider this one. This person took a lot longer than everybody else. We're not, you're not at that stage yet. That comes, that's an analysis by analysis question. Yeah. Um, rather than a, a data, data specific question. Yeah. I think that, that basically covers data, data cleaning. I mean, it's not the most thorough, uh, description of data cleaning. I think we talked a little bit about it in the, uh, above section where you're sort of merging things together. Cause that's the other thing you want to look for is merging errors. Mm -hmm. If you've merged something and you want to make sure that you did it correctly, uh, I, I don't think we said anything about how to do it correctly, which is... No, we should, you can, because you can I would match. say merging is one of like the key ways that you make mistakes, and there's ways that you can put in flags to check yourself when you're merging, or because um, it can really... It can mess <sighs> up. Yeah, you can mess it up. 
It really can. I think that the 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 key is that you're don't ever merge by hand. No. Don't ever merge by copying and pasting. Mm-hmm. Um, I I did meet someone once who who was telling me that they hired someone to come into their lab and spend twenty hours a week merging by hand, like oh my, searching gosh. in an Excel spreadsheet of a thousand people to find ID one, and then searching in another Excel spreadsheet for that same ID, and then copying their data from one and pasting it into the other. <gasps> so. You don't have to do that. There's these cool lookup features that you can use in even in Excel, even if you're managing an Excel, which we don't we don't recommend because it's so easy to accidentally screw something up. But mm-hmm. if you in, a, in a, any statistical software or even in Excel, you can do a lookup match where it will find anybody with the same ID number and copy and paste their data in for you in a matched way, which is much less prone to error than visual. And much faster. Now, what are some checks of uh, merging that you do if you're using, you know, syntax to do it properly? That's a good question. Um, the first thing that I check is the number of people mm-hmm. that were in the data set before I merged yep. and are in the data set after I merged. Because it's crazy how a merge can suddenly create an extra person or two, which are really like, for me and my data sets, usually lines. Uh, rows in my data set. So there could be suddenly have you have extra rows that you don't anticipate after the merge. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that can happen because someone has mistyped someone's ID. Mm-hmm. Um, or it could be just uh, someone's in there twice for some bizarre reason in one data set and not the other. So you can uh, double checking it that way. That's one of the first things. The other thing is sometimes I'll do a just spot check. I'll pick a couple of people and I'll look at their data from one and look at it from the other Mm -hmm. that's that's usually about about it um that's that's what about you do you have other ones besides number of people and well you I usually have like a rule of thumb for how many variables I think I should have created in the merge versus Mm. you know like approximately the you know one data set plus the other data sets variables yeah uh, should be in the combined data set um, if I'm doing fancier merges than just like merge all, then I might do a flag. So if it's like a merge, like one to many or, or many to one, um, mm-hmm. I might fly, do a flag in one of the original data sets. Like literally the very, I'll create a new variable called flag and I'll give everybody a one on that variable. And then once you merge it into the other data set, then, you know, you should have every other line should have that flag one and then it should be missing for the other or something like that can kind of mm-hmm. help you. And then you can do, um, you know, check uh, like some, not some of um, frequency of the flag and make sure the frequency is what you think it should be. Mm-hmm. That yes, you know, there was 316 kids in the original data set that all got flag equals one. And then in my new merge data set, it's 316 flags, yeah. you know, yeah, that should be one. there. Uh, and then, you know, you remember flag as a, you can just delete that variable after you're done. So... And I think uh, just uh, taking a minute here to say that different programs have different ways of describing what merging data sets together means. Um, like sometimes people will call them data frames that you start with, and then you merge them together into one data frame. And they, you can either call it a merge or a set. Mm-hmm. I think SAS calls it a set when you take one data set and the set one below the other one. I'm mm-hmm. miming it, but you can't really see it. Just mm-hmm. like imagine someone in makeup all white face and then like putting one hand and then putting the other hand underneath it. 
<laughs> yeah. So that, so the flag trick would work in a set situation where you're, you know, doubling the participants or something like that. Like they're okay. different participants. Whereas I, so you're adding to the ver- the same variable names, but different participants coming together versus I think of a merge as same participants in each data file and you're merging new variable, the two different types of variables are then coming in together into one data set per participant. Mm-hmm. You can also do the first one where you have you know multiple time points per person, but the variable oh, names are the same. Point. So I it could be set that, that way. Like, yeah, because I yeah, always long have long data set. Wide. Yeah, I know. <laughs> My bad. <laughs> I All different do, kinds of ways. Yeah, I do wide for longitudinal stuff, and I know other people do long, and I forget that that exists. When I'm doing long for longitudinal stuff, then I just run the flag, like not a flag, but just frequencies on the time point yeah. variable. That will give you that information about yeah. Uh, how many you're supposed to have. Yeah, this is also this cleaning stage is, is double checking that you have the people you think you're supposed to have. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's before and after the merge. So if I know that I've been following 316 people and I somehow only have 100 people in this data set, something has gone wrong somewhere. You got to figure out what it is. Um, where, where did they come from? Where did they go? So you got to sort of dig into that data. And something else we actually haven't talked about along that line is not only do you know that the original data set had 316 and you should have it at the end after your data cleaning and merging, but we also haven't talked about that we also you should also have had 316 participants that you know you collected data on to start. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do one of those double checky checks to the original like project management stuff, you know, yeah. to make sure that a participant wasn't missed in data entry or something like that. Because if a chunk of participants, let's say a day's worth of participants, stuff like this can happen, gets lost in a filing cabinet somewhere in the wrong filing mm. system and you forget about it, then, you know, you as a data cleaner or a manipulator or whatever, you know, a uh, merger here, you wouldn't know that because all you're following is what final data entry data you have to make mm-hmm. that clean and done um, mm-hmm. versus, you know, you're missing that. Well, no, in reality, there was 50 kids who were collected that never got entered. Yep. Where did they go? Usually they got filed. Sometimes they're in somebody's car. Sometimes I was say, their car gets car. stolen. In a car? Oh, yeah. We, who, that happened to our friends. <laughs> yeah, there's all kinds of – people have the best horror stories. We'll have to put out another call for good data horror stories. It's been a couple of years since I got, a, I got a good collection going, so it'll be fun to hear about your data collection horror stories. Oh, one of my favorites, though, was somebody had a, a box that they were collecting data in in the lab, but that it kept – it all kept disappearing. They wouldn't have the data the next day. But then they, it, it, it went on for weeks, and eventually they figured out that it's because the box said trash on it, and somebody oh. was coming in and <laughs> dumping it out. They were losing data daily, and they did not take us. St- it took them weeks to figure it out. I, I don't actually, you know, sure. Who knows? That makes that a good story. The, I don't remember how many days it took. Yet. But st- <laughs> still, like, where did that go? I had it right here. Oh, I know. So sad. All right. So let's talk a little bit about the next piece, which is the reason that you're doing all of this data cleaning is to get to a data set that you can analyze and use. Mm -hmm. There's going to still be some stuff that you need to do to the data before you analyze it probably, but, but you have a data set that's like the final, the, the data set you want to, once you have it, we sometimes in our lab, we'll call it like a release data set. Mm -hmm. You use those terms as well. Mm Mm-hmm like a, a released data set. This is the final version. It lives here. We do not touch it, barring 
very specific circumstances. Like, I might retouch it again if all of a sudden we go, oh, no, we forgot about these 20 kids. Somebody filed their their yeah. forms without entering them and now we just found them. Or then sometimes, you can go back and fix it. Sometimes for me, I need like a data user analyzer, anal- analyzer to get into it and be like, oh, you messed up something. I'm like, oh, right. So usually there's like a second release after the first one. <laughs> Mere weeks, of them. mere weeks later. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but so the idea is that it just sort of sits there. It's final. Yeah. You don't touch it. When you want to do an analysis, I'm skipping ahead. I apologize. When you, if you want to, when you want to analyze this data, you will take and save a copy of it. I suggest that you save a copy of it in an, like an analysis folder somewhere. And mm-hmm. then you can, uh, in, in my case, I will always write code to manipulate the data in whatever way I need to, to whittle down the sample or to whittle down the variables to get to whatever it is that I need for that paper. And you save that code along with the, the, the specific paper that you're working on, because then you can keep it. And it just refers back to that uh, archived permanent data set that never changes. Yeah. Usually I have, like, if I have a project folder, it's either like a shared folder or it's on my own computer. And then within that project folder, there's always data and then like a final data. So I have the work, you know, the previous versions and then a final data. And that's where I go. If I'm starting a new project, I get that final data set. And then I take it to where whatever folder for that paper I have started. Yeah. And that folder is totally distinct. Usually maybe it's within that project folder still, but it's like a paper specific folder. And then that mm-hmm. data set start, you know, a copy of it lives there. And then um, the code that then calls in that specific data set, so to- the top of the code. And then you do all the, the whatever you need to do specific to that paper mm-hmm. from then on. It's so nice. And I, I, I'll tell you that there's been instances of papers you guys have all had papers like this probably, but that just take forever and they take years to go mm-hmm. through. And then you'll go through a couple of rounds of review and then it's rejected and then you move it somewhere else. And it just takes years to get something done. And I had an instance like this with a paper where it just sort of sat in somebody's lap for over a year. And then all of a sudden they were like, hey, let's resubmit. Let's get this submitted. And then went to submit it and then emailed me something like, hey, can we double check these analyses are real? And I was like, oh, crap. Maybe, but thankfully they followed a system like this. So I was able to pull up my code. I was able to pull the data set that, that existed when I was, you know, when I was working with the data and quickly rerun everything and double check and make sure that it was, it was correct. So mm-hmm. following a system like this will only benefit you. It will mm-hmm. only make your life easier in the future. I promise. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing I have under here is versioning of data sets. So if you've released a data set, the only time that I would create a new a new version would be something like what you talked about, which is, oh no, we accidentally forgot 50 people. We're going to add them in. Or, oh no, we, we had this instance recently where we said, oh my gosh, condition was coded wrong on these three classrooms. Whoops. And we had to go back into the data and sort of fix the, the condition code. So that needs mm-hmm. to be done in the primary data set. Those are huge issues that will reverberate throughout every project that's done. And but you want to always, I, I say versioning because you want to keep the old version somewhere because you don't want to end up in a situation where you can't replicate something you did because they've updated the data. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's what the, the versioning is there for. Okay. I think that transitions us nicely into the next step, which is backing up your data. Please. I, no, you don't I, back up your data? 
Oh yeah, I do. What I am constantly shocked about is how few people back up their whole damn com- don't back up their whole damn computer. I think not only should you be backing up. Your- oh, Jessica, are you serious? <laughs> I do such a bad job of it. <gasps> I know. It like physically makes me upset. Okay, but here's the thing. No, well, no, 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 no. There's no thing. No, no. There's Jess, no thing. Okay. And any list, if this is you right now, promise me you will take the thirty minutes to an hour this week. Schedule it. We've talked about how you could. It's Sunday right now. Mm-hmm. Put it. Put it on your. You know, you're scheduling your week out and. Figure out a system to back up your damn computer. Mm-hmm. Your whole computer should be mirrored somewhere else. Mine goes, we get free OneDrive storage at FSU. It's included in my university, one terabyte of data. My entire laptop gets mirrored instantaneously to OneDrive in a backup folder. There is never a delay between the backup. And uh, so any change immediately gets put there. So Wow. That's great. Figure it out. Now, that to get that, I was pretty insistent with my IT support people to that I wanted that. And it took them a little bit of specialized coding to make that happen. But I just kept on them and they could do it. But there are other ways you could do it. Make it happen. I, I constantly in my lab, I'm like, has everybody, you know, because, you know, grad students get new computer. Who knows? You know, I'm like, do you have, is your entire computer backed up? I mean, it is, but not this week. Oh, you would lose a week. How, I know. how You're right. would you I feel would if you lost a week worth of work? I would cry. I yeah. would probably, I don't know what I would do. I don't know what I would do. You're right. You're right. You're absolutely right. And you know what's funny is I actually had the opposite experience, which I had to, I had to screen share with someone like the head of our IT department recently because I had an issue getting into our online server where we do, like we have a, a server to do like high lots of processing power for data analysis. Anyway, it was ha- it wouldn't load in. And so she was watching me navigate through my folders. She did a really good job of like holding her breath and waiting. And then later mm-hmm. on was like, so I noticed that you seem to have everything saved on your actual computer. Let's talk about some alternatives. Yeah, because you're right. IT, a lot of my students have just moved to all, all of their stuff working off of OneDrive. Um I have a very old school reason why I don't like to do that. I have a, some old programs that I use, statistical programs that require a number of characters for a path extension, and they're yeah. really short. And OneDrive yeah. adds a lot of characters to a path extension. So I prefer like C and then exactly where I need to go to keep it as short as possible. But that's why I had to be so insistent to my IT people that I'm like, I can't change this process. It's going to be saved on my hard drive, but I need it to be backed up immediately at, at all times. Oh, so smart. So yes, you could you could just work off of a OneDrive folder. Yeah, okay. Back to advice for other people. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to check in. I'll do it tonight. I'm married to someone who really likes techie things. He'll help me figure it out. I was like, he would lose it if he heard this too. Come on now. (laughs) Everybody out there, you should be similarly as concerned. Look at, oh my gosh, you're really, you're really worried about me. It's okay. I promise I'll do it today. I'll do it today. Have you not, like, as a grad student, I lost a memory stick 
oh, like I wiped, wiped it out. Yeah, how easy it was to wipe those out, even if you like didn't eject them and you just pulled it out of your computer. So oh, horrifies yeah. me to see people do that because that's how I lost <laughs> lots of code. Um, and it was my advisor who did that, by the way, because I knew better and I always ejected and he just ripped that out of his computer. And I still, it's like, it's like he slapped me and hurt me in ways that I just couldn't, like, it was... I was like, oh, my God, it's gone. It's all gone. <laughs> Days worth of work. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, that's so terrible. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so that memory. And by the way, this year alone, I've had a graduate student who lost her entire laptop and died. And she lost no. works, we, works, weeks worth of work. <gasps> oh, my God, that's terrible. Yeah. So, no, it happens regularly. You can't even be on Twitter for more than a few days without somebody talking about losing work. Mm, that's there true. are systems in place. Do people do this with Dropbox? If you don't have OneDrive or whatever, you know, they do it with drop with Dropbox. Mm-hmm, I don't mm-hmm. know. But then that's what, to get back onto the data management, I'll get off the soapbox a little bit. Then that will be your backup to your data as well. Yes. Uh, no, I want to, I don't know that you can actually do that with Dropbox. So let me be clear that oh, wherever okay. you store your data, it needs to be approved by your IRB if you have human subjects data. Oh, so, yeah, yeah. So you can't, I don't think Dropbox passes all of the, the tests for the S levels of data security oh, in order okay. for you to keep it there. I, it might for your university. It also might not. It also depends on what you're storing. If you're storing completely anonymous data that has no nothing yeah. but ones and zeros, then maybe you're fine. But if you have anything where people have responded, um, open-ended, or where people have you – know, if you have names, if you have things like that, that probably can't be stored on Dropbox. It just depends. Um, you know, OneDrive at, at our university, OneDrive, and, and we have – box both of those pass those security levels and so we're Mm -hmm. able to store them there based on how our university keeps them but i think it's going to depend university to university where you can yeah where it is yeah what you can always do which is not great practice either but if if you can't figure anything out with your university about what they allow you can get an external hard drive you can put everything on an external hard drive and you can lock it in a cabinet drawer it's not ideal but you can do it all right, so that's I, that's data backup, and I have been fully reprimanded, and I deserved it. And I will yeah. fix that today, and I will tweet about it tomorrow, so that you know this is me being held accountable. <laughs> I promise. Okay. <laughs> the way that I'm judging Jess right now through our Zoom video, and she sees my nonverbals judging her. Um, imagine that every listener that's out there that has not backed up their computer in a while, judging. <laughs> Hardcore. <laughs> all right. The last thing we have is sharing it. Yeah. Because now you've done all of the work to make it so that it's easy for you to use and reuse. Uh, we just I recommend so highly, so much that you then take the extra step to get it shared somewhere. You take all of the codebook information we talked about in the first episode, and then you merge it, you merge it all together. You take all of the data sets from this episode. There's a little bit we have in there uh, in our, we have a paper about this now that you can Mm -hmm. read about our suggestions for how to get data shared. And then take that and you can get it um, shared out to the world so other people can use it and get all the benefits of data sharing. Uh, So, you know, you mentioned, I think, an important thing about like how we share 
data publicly or at least, and then also with your collaborators. And I think we don't necessarily think about ways we could easily share with our collaborators yeah. uh, and like a shared folder of some sort so that you're not constantly emailing data sets to people. I also don't recommend emailing data sets uh-uh. to people. Uh-uh. Uh, don't do that ever. Um, I use a file transfer system that FSU has and I'm constantly like when somebody sends me a data set in an email, I'm like, please don't do that. Please use another file transfer system. Um, that I'm sure your university has, I'm sure it's probably like HIPAA and IRB approved to, uh-huh. to uh-huh. also transfer. Usually data sets are large, have a big memory. Uh, they're, they're big files. So don't, don't pop that in my email. Um, but you know, like think about how you're going to share your data with your collaborators and then publicly like a data repository. Oof. All right. Well, I think that, uh, this clearly could have been three episodes. <laughs> I mean, maybe it could have been six. Maybe we could have done all nine. Yeah, could have, could have. Let's go all extended universe on ourselves mm-hmm. and, you know, a couple of animated series on data management, a couple of <laughs> comics. I don't know. A couple of comics. <laughs> a few variety show appearances. Who knows? <laughs> that is data management. You see, we love it. We love it. I'm Gosh. very interested in data management. I just think it's so, you know what? It's It comes all back to that same that same quote. Science, it's more interesting when it's true. And so this is our guide to you to help you start thinking about ways that you can help make sure that you're dealing with data that is closer to true uh, than it might be if you didn't think about these things. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thanks, everyone. Yeah. Should we tell them the good news and the bad news? Oh, yeah. Good news, bad news. Slash. Uh, we're going to go on a little break. Spring break. Oh, my gosh. It's spring break. That's why. Yeah. We'll just we have a reason. For longer than a week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's, we're, we're going to be uh, taking a little break from the podcast for a couple of weeks while we finish up the semester, uh, clean our own data, prepare some more episodes for you. We have some good ideas about the next episodes we want to do. We're excited mm-hmm. to present them for you. Um, and then yeah. we'll, we'll be back probably early summer sometime this yeah summer. We'll, we'll come back season three all right so thanks everyone for hanging with us have a good rest of your semester thanks for listening to this episode of within and between for information about this and all our episodes you can visit our website within and between connect with us on twitter at within underscore between, where you can send us questions about developmental science and developmental sciencing. See you next time. <laughs> <laughs>